Kala Falava and welcome to the Global Bus Figure Success Podcast. I'm Andrew Fatavali, your host. Every week I'll be chatting with successful Pacific people from across the globe, unpacking their stories and more importantly, picking out insights, lessons and golden nuggets you can use to live your best life too. to everyone. What's up and welcome to the Global Bus Vika Success Podcast. Hope everyone's doing good. Um, last week on the show, we were fortunate enough to have Karina Lyons drop in. And Karina's been a UN negotiator. She was one of the youngest ambassadors for New Zealand and is currently in Hawaii as the Vice President and Director of Research at the East West Centre and is also a Director of the Pacific Island Development Programme. So she's an amazing woman and very inspiring. So if you haven't listened to that show do yourself a favor and check it out on our podcast platforms. And while you're there, please do me a favor and rate, review and subscribe to this channel. It's been an interesting week this week. There was some really cool news that was shared online about a group of ex-All Blacks who have started a new Pacific rugby venture. And that's based out of Hawaii. It's called the Kanaloa Rugby Club. And they'll be competing in the US Major League Rugby Comp this year. Hopefully we'll be able to see them in Super Rugby down here soon too. But it's just really awesome to see these athletes set themselves up, build a team around them and then get approved to participate in an elite competition. It looks like they have a clear, proven, articulate and ambitious CEO at the helm. Tracy Artinga was really impressed with how she presented on TV, which is awesome. And um, speaking of CEOs, joining us this week is Alex Faller. And I first met Alex as a 15-year-old in Wellington. We were both involved in a rugby tournament down there at Rangatai College. And he bulleted my best mate, actually, Mone Lolohea. And um, I then bumped into him a bit later after school when we were in the same class at the Uni of Auckland. He moved up. And we were in the Samoan classes. And, um, you know, these were just passing moments. And I knew Alex is a really quiet but smart dude. And after uni, it was really interesting for me because then I, I, I soon after saw him on TV and he was getting interviewed. And then I see him in the papers. And then I saw that he got a Rhodes Scholar soon after as well. And so he is a Rhodes Scholar and he's a CEO. He recently resigned as a CEO of Vend. And Vend is a company that is a cloud point of sale platform. He previously worked for Kiwi Growth Companies, Les Mills International, uh, Trade Me and Orion Health. And out of uni, he worked for the global management company McKinsey's. And that's no small feat. McKinsey's is a well-known, reputable, elite company. And so to go from graduation into a company like that speaks volumes about Alex and um, the talent that he could contribute to such a company. He finished uni at Auckland with a BCom in finance and accounting. And this is with a first class honours. He's a humble, down-to-earth and ambitious guy and Alex was kind enough to lend us some time and share his story and I feel really privileged to be able to share it this week. So um, welcome Alex and i just start off please man, can you just shed a bit of light growing up in Wellington in the capital? Yeah, well I tell you it goes back even further than that actually. So I spent my primary school years in Masterton in the Wairarapa. So yeah, so that was interesting, right? Because uh, you can imagine there weren't too many Samoans living in Masterton in the the 80s. Um, So uh, so that that was, you know, an interesting upbringing. And I, I moved to Wellington when I was about 10 years old. And then as you said, sort of had one year in intermediate and then went on to St. Pat's. And yeah, I often talk, you know, I say I'm from Wellington and Wellington's where my heart is and I feel like it made me. Those St. Pat's years were really important to me. So why did you start up in Wairarapa? What took your family to Masterton? Yep. Um, so my dad was, uh, he was working in a bank originally and he was in Wellington. Then they moved to Palmerston North, which was where I was born. And then they moved to Masterton with the bank. So yeah, that's how we came to be in Masterton. Man, your dad's a little bit of a legend, eh? Because he was one of the, he was a really good salesman in the end. He left the bank and then did he transition into sales? Yeah, that's right. My dad is a bit of a legend. So he, um, he grew up in, uh, in the village of Sasai in, in Samoa. And, you know, legend has it that he was the first kid in the village to get uh, what was school certificate and UE in those days. So actually, I remember going back to the village for the first time and seeing the certificates on the wall and stuff, which was really cool. But yeah, then so after he uh, after he left the bank, he got into selling insurance. Sounds strange to say, but it was a really important part of my upbringing as well. You know, I remember my dad worked for NZI. New Zealand Insurance, and they did these league tables of who the top salespeople were in the country. 
And, you know, you see these league tables and there'd be all of these European names from Limuera and Fendleton, these rich suburbs and big cities. And then there's Yole Fala from Masterton making cracking the top 10. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool to be to, to grow up with dad doing that and just kind of stamping his own mark, you know. Mm. So, obviously, he was raised in Samoa. Where did he get the confidence to get out there and sell? In an, in, was English a second language? Yeah, it was. But to start off with, Dad went to St. Joseph's and, and up here, and, mm. and his nickname there was actually Hamlet um, because he loved Shakespeare. Um, so he had, that, he had that sort of dramatism and theatre about him. And, and then I think it just comes down to hunger. You know, he, So Dad always had the gift of the gab. Uh, but he was also a social person and, you know, super motivated. Sales is a really tough job. You know, I, I, I think salespeople are, probably don't get the respect they deserve. You know, their, their job, nine out of 10 people are going to say no to you. And getting out of bed every morning and, and being successful in the context of a lot of people saying no, I, I think that's, you know, takes, deserves respect. So let's have a look at his mentality then around taking notes, what did you learn from observing your old man getting out there and, you know, getting rejected, but still carrying yeah. and, and maintaining that hunger and fire? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really lucky because dad exposed us to all of that. You know, we weren't going on sales calls with him, but we used to take, you know, we'd do the family road trips like lots of families and uh, we'd be in the car and we'd be listening to motivational tapes. Um, so, so, so right from an early age, you know, like, I mean, these days it's kind of the Tony Robbins and the podcasts and stuff, but we had like the cassette tapes that we'd pop in and, you know, instead of singing songs in the back of the car, we'd be listening to these motivational tapes. <laughs> so that was cool. But I mean, I, I remember from early on, I learned that your, your mind was a really powerful thing and it could overcome a lot of really difficult things um, that you experience, you know. So two things sort of come to mind when you talk about that mentality I mean, I remember growing up and there was this one kind of, um, you know, there was this framed quote that my dad had, and it, uh, I might get it slightly wrong, it's just etched into my brain after all these years, but it said something along the lines of, um, whatever you vividly imagine, ardently desire, sincerely believe and enthusiastically act upon must inevitably come to pass. So that was one thing, you know, it was just that if you really believe it and go after it, you can achieve it. And then the other thing that comes to mind was, uh, is um, I'm not sure exactly what year dad gave it to me, but he gave me this book and the book was called Miss Phillips, You Were Wrong. And, and the subtitle for the book is uh, a formula to handle rejection. And, mm-hmm. and the story of the book is about a guy called Peter Daniels, who was, I think he had polio when he was younger and got held back a couple of classes And he had this teacher called Miss Phillips who said that he was useless and would never amount to anything. And of course, by the time he was writing writing the book, he was driving around in his gold Rolls Royce and had been a massively successful entrepreneur. Um, But there were lots of lessons in there. You know, lessons like just simple things around believing in yourself, even when other people criticize you, they're not God, they're not the final authority on these things. So I think the successes that I've had, I put a lot of them down to that upbringing and mental training that I got from really early on. Yeah, it's a funny thing to me because I've known you for a long time. And I remember even at uni, you were really quiet, but I didn't know that there was this fire that was burning inside your belly. And, <laughs> and then maybe five years later, you were going to England on a road scholarship and then you were a CEO and you were co- coming on TV and stuff. And I was in a journey where I was still trying to learn. <laughs> I was yeah. And I was thinking, man, this dude. That fire just became an inferno. But how did you maintain it? And how did you give off this really, obviously things were going internally and in your brain, you were thinking you had a lot of Mm. self-belief, but you were really humble with it. How did you get that nexus? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, just uh, some of it's just about context, right? Mm. So when we were hanging out at uni, um, it was in Samoan class. And, you know, we haven't really talked about that much, but of course, you know, that was a context. I I didn't speak the language growing up. And, uh, and so that was a context in which I really did feel like I was a beginner and, you know, should be humble because I was there really to start from the bottom. But the other side, I think, is, you know, like many people say, like, I still feel like I'm part of the way on the journey and, and I, I haven't achieved all the things I want to achieve. And, and uh, no one, even for the things that I, that I did achieve, no one likes to show off, man. And, and uh, you know, 
got taught that by my parents and uh and you know if you think about the boys at school and stuff uh if ever you if ever you slipped up on that one you got you got told pretty quickly so yeah i think it's just part of the upbringing cool man so then at about 10 you went across the valley and you did one year at intermediate and then into st pat's so st yep. pat's obviously a really important place for you yeah st pat's is home for me when i say i come from welly people often ask what part of welly did you live in and and my answer is always, well, I moved around, but home for me was with the boys at St. Pat's. You know, my parents had just separated. And so, you know, I found a, found a community and a brotherhood there. You know, I'd been this, this Afakasi kid growing up in the Wairarapa, and then I went to St. Pat's, and there was a big, um, you know, big island and Samoan community there, which helped me to discover my identity. And, and you know, it was a school with a lot of spirit. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of boys' schools talk about the brotherhood there and, you know, at St. Pat's, I've never seen it stronger. You know, I was back at St. Pat's in January to go and uh, to go and sing with some of the old boys to welcome our new rector, first first ever Pacific Island rector, and at St. Pat's. So, yeah, still really really connected to that school. Yeah, it helped to define who I am. So, as an Afakasi, then um, in the wider upper, was it a bit more stark than it was in Wellington? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as I said, in Masterton, the way it was when I was growing up, or certainly the way that I perceived it was, you know, there were there were the white schools, there were the brown schools, and then there was the Catholic school. And I was I was one of the brown kids at the Catholic school. I think in my entire time in Masterton, there was there was like two other Samoan families who I came across. And we had a lot of, obviously, connections to family and stuff, but, but in day-to-day life, being an Islander was unique. And at times that was great. You know, like when Michael Jones came on the scene, he was he was one of us. Uh, but it, you know, on the other hand, uh, there was racism around, um, so that, that was pretty challenging at times growing up. So racism it always um, raises questions about yourself, and you know, who are you? What kind of questions are going through your mind or through your spirit through that wider up or Wellington kind of phase, and how were they answered? I think you've answered it kind of, but is there anything else about how those questions were answered at St. Pat's? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think those things are a lifelong journey, um, to tell the truth. I mean, growing up, you know, we loved seeing our cousins on our on our Samoan side, and you know, and just experiencing that side of the culture, of the family, and being part of a big family, um, and just being being in that community. We loved that side, and so I always identified with them. And my family in in Wellington, they were they had their own. They basically had their own basketball club, um, All Stars <laughs> Basketball Club. So. You know, as I, as I was all through growing up and, and particularly as I became a teenager, you know, we would, they had, they had keys to the old Newtown Park gym. And, you mm. know, if I stayed with them for the holidays or whatever, like Sundays was, we, we'd have kongai and, and then we'd all have a sleep. And then at about six or seven, we'd all go to the gym and run till 11 or midnight or something. So, so I love that side of things. I think when I was, when I was in Masterton and, and started to experience the racism, you know, for me, I, I probably, I fought against it. You know, I was, I was pretty, um, you know, I was a kid, I was aggressive. I, I didn't take it. Mm. I think the one time I really got in trouble at school was when I lashed out at a kid because he was bullying me. Um, so, you know, when I was really young, there was a special part of me that I felt like I really wanted to represent in the community, which didn't have many island people. Okay. So you can imagine then it was a bit of a shock when I showed up at St. Pat's and suddenly there's all these islanders. Yeah. And by the way, they were kind of, uh, you know, they were more more um, deeply steeped in the community than I was. Yeah. You know, they spoke the language and, you know, many of them had grown up together uh, at schools with lots of lots of Samoans and, and the church and stuff like that. And, and so that was a bit of a shock to me. It took me a while to settle in and really feel like I was part of that. But that journey over my five years at St. Pat's, you know, by the end of it, I, I really felt part of that brotherhood and, and I felt like I'd, I'd learnt a lot more about myself. Awesome, man. So why did you choose University of Auckland? Uh, it's a funny story. So I actually thought about moving to Auckland after sixth form, so year 12 these days, so my second to last year. Um, we'd always come up to visit Auckland. Um, you know, I had cousins who lived in Otara and, uh, and loved visiting them and and there was just something about being in a bigger place that I liked. I, I just, it, it kind of gave me the sense of freedom and opened my eyes. And so I'd always thought about moving to Auckland. Um, but I loved my time at St. Pat's. So, so I stayed there all through, to, all through to my last year at school. And then uh, during my last year at school, I actually met my, 
met my wife now. Um, so, so she was obviously my girlfriend then, but we met during our last year at school. And so, and she was going, I knew she was going to go to Palmerston North for uni. So I thought I was going to stay in Wellington so I could be a bit more close to her and things were drifting along. Thought, uh, yeah, I'll just stay in Welly. And then, and then one day my dad just said to me, oh, hey son, what happened to you going to Auckland? And I said to him, you know, basically did said what I just said to you, except for I stumbled, I mumbled a little bit and stumbled over it. And, uh, and basically dad didn't let me off the hook. He just said, nah, we don't, you know, in this family, we don't drift. Um, we make decisions. And so, you know, we talked about it, you know, we spent, spent a night basically yelling at each other and, you know, a little bit of crying, a few tears. And, and by the end of it, I was going to Auckland. Um, Holy. Yeah. And not because dad had pushed me into it. Uh, it was because he wouldn't let me off the hook, uh, just drifting. He, he forced me to make a decision. So, so for me, Auckland was really, I wanted, to, you know, I wanted a business career and I wanted to be in a place where, uh, where, you know, which was the commercial center of New Zealand. I felt like I'd get better exposure there. And I also just wanted to challenge myself a bit more. You know, I felt like I'd had a great five years at St. Pat's, but if I went to Vic, I'd probably be sitting around the Vic quad with the same guys who I'd sat around with at St. Pat's. So it was time to, time to put, you know, just put myself in a, in a, in a bit less comfortable position. So in many ways, you've got a context and environment for building aspiration, and then yeah. you've got internals for building aspiration. Uh, what were your actual aspirations at that time, like maybe 17 to 18? So when I went to uni, I was tossing up between being a marine biologist or an investment banker. Oh. Um, so <laughs> completely different things. Oh, yeah. But look, I decided, you know, by the time I went to uni, I decided I wanted to have a crack at being an investment banker. And, and a lot of it was, you know, I'd, I'd seen the movie Wall Street when I was a kid. And I mean, that movie shows a whole lot of, it exposes a lot of the ethical issues with finance and Wall Street during the 80s. But what it also showed was the excitement of business. And, you know, the thing that I loved about the idea of finance was that you could kind of play at the top level. You, weren't, you were looking at moving, making big plays. And so that was exciting to me. And the other thing that was exciting to me was there's a character in Wall Street called Bud Fox, um, which is the Charlie Sheen character. And he's trying to break into Wall Street after growing up um, in essentially a working class family. His dad's a union leader. And when I looked at that Bud Fox character, essentially coming from nothing and trying to turn himself into something great, it actually reminded me of my father's story. Coming from the islands and then building himself up and to, to being that top 10 salesperson. Um, and so there was just something attractive about that. Uh, so so that's, that was the aspiration. It was always about doing big things. Yeah. So, so that, 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 was, that was what I wanted to do when I got to Auckland. So just, you know, I guess this is a little bit of a tangent, but as a parent, right, mm. your father didn't let you off the hook. How are you not letting your kids off the hook? I'm keen to understand as a father of young kids. Yeah. Um, same thing. You know, I, I, I think uh, with our kids, we try and teach them to be thoughtful. And, you know, it, it comes down to a lot of the things that I think many parents do, which is we expect them to try their best. You know, we, we don't judge our children by results, but we expect them to, to expect the best of themselves and then go after it. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't describe us as pushy parents, but um, in fact, my daughter the other day, she came back uh, with her, her results from her science test and, and my question to her afterwards was just, were you happy with that result? And then it was, do you think you reached your potential? And, you know, I don't feel like, I, I don't need to yell at my kids. I don't need to kind of force them to do homework or anything like that. I think if you trust in your kid's spirit and just ask them the right question, then, then I have faith that they find it themselves. Man, that's deep, man. And um, I really love the fact that, you know, we're starting to get into this questions-based uh, culture rather than statements or orders. Because, you know, growing up in a Samoan house or around Samoan families, you often see, do the dishes, wipe the dishes, <laughs> you know, a lot of like, and I think it's because... Oh, they get that, they get that stuff. Don't yeah. worry about that. <laughs> what I freaked out was when I, I went over and played um, footy in England and I had to stay with a, a New Zealand kid family mm. and they had a young kid and they would say Billy would you like to help me do the dinner and I was like what the heck they're asking and you know they're asking it for me I was like man that was really mind-blowing and it was culturally kind of um it really made me reflect on culture and try to understand it 
And and so that's why I've seen mm. that for our kids, questions is going to be the key. I know we do give statements and orders, and and I understand the underpinning reasons why in Samoan culture you should already know your place. So do the jobs that align to your place in your family. Yeah, um, you know, so it's it's cultural nuance. But I was really blown away by questions. So I love that you've come back to questions, and I even love just the fact that there's only two questions. You know, for you. <laughs> yeah, I I mean look I. The way that I think about that, um, like I, I'm not one of these new age parents. I think sometimes people get too soft. Yeah. Uh, I, but I, I sort of, I think of my role as, um, you know, is to is to help them to set the standards, and then and then it's up to them to live up to them. And uh, yeah, but you know, of course, we we all get things wrong as parents. I certainly do. I think um, we're all at risk of, um, you know, you don't want to beat your kid's spirit down either. So I just, you know, try and teach things as teach him. Treat, treat uh, every experience as a teaching moment, and uh, but at the same time, kind of let them just live life and have fun. That's me, bro. So you're up here in Auckland University. You're doing the BCom. <laughs> and what did you do after that? What was your first job, and how did you end up, you know, in this crazy big plays world? So university had its ups and downs, that's for sure. So, uh, so I ended up getting a first class honors degree, which was which was amazing. Um, so that you do an extra year after your BCom. Um, but the way that the honours degree usually works is, is um, you do your first two years and then they invite you in. Uh, and I didn't get invited uh, in after my second year. Um, and I think this was where the, you know, this is where uh, my dad and, and, the, and the piece of my dad and me came out because uh, I just went and talked to the, talked to the people around the honours program and talked to the lecturers and, and basically said, I want to be in. Um, what do I have to do over this next year to get in? And, and then they told me, and, and then I just stayed in touch with them, made sure that I was front of mind for them. Mm. Uh, so, um, so yeah, that, that, that was really, so my third year was critical for me. That was the year where, you know, made sure that I got the grades that I needed to get, and then they got it, and then they invited me into the honours program. So, yeah, that was cool. So you did a Mrs. Phillips, you were wrong. Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the book came to life, bro. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the thing that I've discovered in life is that, and this this actually goes against some of what we're we're brought up to believe as as Pacific Islanders, mm. is sometimes you know don't ask, don't get, um, and so you've got to ask for things. So I, you know, I figured, well, I didn't get in this time. That's fine, um, but maybe if I ask and no one else has asked, there might be a loophole, or there might be an exception, or I'll find out what I need to do. You know, that was just part of. You know, part of uh, my approach to things, and you know, it comes down to being that salesman. And and I think you know, one thing Dad taught me about sales as well is you're not necessarily selling the product. In many cases, you're selling yourself. Um, mm. And so, I wanted the people who are running their program to see that I was someone worth investing in or worth taking a risk on. Yeah, I love that, man. And you're exactly right. You know, often we sit back and we just accept the marks will be accept because over here in Queensland, we've been looking at the, um, it's really sad to say, but expulsions and things like that. Mm. In the regional office, they're saying that if 50% of parents had actually gone for appeal, it would have been put out the door and their kid could have continued their educational journey. But yeah. the missing point there is the parents going back and questioning authority and asking the question, is this right? And, you know, they often... Yeah. Which could come down to the fact that we uh, respect authority, but maybe sometimes to our detriment. Yeah, I think people are confused. They think that there's only two ways to behave. One of them is passive and the other one's aggressive. And I think that there's a middle point in between where you can be respectful and assertive at the same time. And, you know, sometimes we don't ask for what we want because we're brought up to be passive. And sometimes we don't ask for what we want because we're scared that someone will see us as aggressive or disrespectful and we don't want to be that. But I, yeah, I just think if you ask people politely and, and respectfully and in an open-minded way, you'll be surprised what you can get. It's true. And I was just talking to Lucan, who's a wallaby, and he, you know, he's a young dude. So I was asking him about the youth culture at the moment. And he was saying, you know, sometimes we're so passive until a point where we just become aggressive. Mm. <laughs> And then you know, the outside world just sees that. They don't see the journey of, of the passiveness. They just see, oh, this dude's aggressive. So yeah. it's good to have that middle point and see 
we can actually behave in another way and that will be a healthier process and give us healthier and better outcomes. In fact, as as we're talking about this, can I give one financial tip to whoever's listening? Go hard. If if you're going to get a mortgage for a home, never accept the headline rate. Awesome. Ask ask for a discount because generally if you ask, you'll get it. I've never paid the full the full headline mortgage rate. Simply by asking. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> Even in that, hey, we, we, you know, um, I don't want to. So, so hopefully, if if someone didn't know that, I might have just saved them thousands of dollars, and they could spend that on their kids or enjoying their life better rather than paying it to the bank. Awesome, man. Yeah, because, you know, even the fact that sometimes we're loyal to the banks that we've been banked with for ages, man, they're not loyal to us. Yeah, that's, that's business, man. Yeah, that's business. So let's start moving into business, man. So you got your honours program. What did you come out to do out of, out of uni? Yeah, so I mentioned before that I, I was really attracted to the idea of investment banking. But while I was at uni, I discovered that there was this thing called management consulting. Um, and management consulting had a lot of the things that I loved about investment banking, but it was more about helping companies to get better as opposed to just buying and selling companies. And that just, that fit really more with my ethos. You know, I mean, as well as the things that I mentioned, the sales side of, of what I grew up with, um, you know, I also grew up in the Catholic church and having a, you know, social conscience and all of those things. So, so I was more about trying to help people get better. Um, and I discovered management consulting and particularly uh, an organization called McKinsey. Um, you know, lots of people wouldn't have heard of McKinsey, but, you know, most of the time McKinsey's the, the preferred employer for Harvard MBA grads. Um, and, and, you know, I was fortunate to, 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 be, um, to be offered a position there. Uh, and, you know, that, at that point, that was a real dream. And, you know, McKinsey exposed me to so many things. Like, I'm sure we'll talk about the roads at some point. Uh, but I never would have got the Rhodes Scholarship if it wasn't for McKinsey. I never thought that I even had the opportunity to apply for something like that. And then I showed up at McKinsey and there were 12 consultants in the Auckland office and three of them were Rhodes Scholars. And one of them was a guy called Andrew Grant who was running the office. And Andrew said to me during my interview, you should think about applying for a Rhodes. Um, so there was, there was a big, you know, McKinsey was great in itself, but it was also a big part of the, the future journey that I was going to go on. But even how cool is it that you're rubbing shoulders with all these really elite people? You know, yeah, it was, it was an eye-opener, man. It was an eye-opener. You know, like I'd never, I'd never been, I think when I, when I went through grad recruitment, I'd been overseas twice in my life. I'd been once to Brisbane, um, Expo 88, which I think were lots <laughs> of, for our generation, lots of us, there was our only time we went, went overseas. Yeah. Um, and then I actually I was privileged. My uncle took me to South Africa when I was at uni, but, but I wasn't a worldly person. Um, and then I go to McKinsey and yeah, had, had, that, had that experience. And there was, there were so many amazing people. And every time we did a project, we'd get on the phone and talk to someone who'd done something similar around the world. And it just opened my eyes to, to what world-class looked like and, and that maybe I could be that. Man. So from McKinsey, they, their, their mission is to make companies better. What are, what are some of the underpinning principles of making companies better? Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't phrase it like that. I think, I can't remember the exact mission, but it's something along the lines of sustained client impact. So yeah, you, you know, when you, you go to McKinsey, you're learning about both the, I guess, the analytical side, so the thinking, you know, so whether it be numbers or, or, or more qualitative analysis, but then you're also thinking about the influence um, of, of people influencing clients so that they will actually get benefit from your recommendations. So there's, there's both of those, both of those sides to it. But really what I think what makes McKinsey stand out is they're a values driven organization, uh, which lots of organizations say they are, but most of them are not. Most organizations, when it comes down to it, they will compromise their values for commercial gain or their values aren't deeply embedded within them. But I think at McKinsey, um, you know, they were a very values driven organization. What are some of the things that helps them or allows them to manifest their values? Like, is it in decision-making and boundaries? And how does every part of the uh, organization pick up the values and live by them? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, of course, they do uh, all the things that many organizations do, like they've written down and all of that. But ultimately, values come down to living them and everyone in the organization living those every day and modeling them. So I'll give you one example. 
Um, one of the McKinsey values that I always loved was the obligation to dissent. And what that means is that if you believe that the team is getting the wrong answer, then you have an absolute obligation to speak up. Not the opportunity to speak up, the obligation to speak up. So what that means is if, if you don't speak up and then the wrong thing gets recommended, then you're responsible for that incorrect recommendation. Now, that, that sounds quite logical, except when you think about that applying to me, snotty-nosed 21-year-old coming into the organization and then dealing with really titans of business within the organization, you know, people who have been, been senior partners for 25 years and, and them expecting me to live that, live that value as well, that's, it's super powerful. And I think very few organizations are able to achieve that. Man, that makes me think about, because this is, this is a podcast about Pacific success. And I think when I think about the blessings and talent that we have, and, um, you know, often it's marginalized, but there's an opportunity to bring it into mainstream. People come to me and say, hey, man, I want to do this and I want to do that. I think I've got experience that um, can help others. Mm-hmm. And I basically say to them, it's not actually a choice that you have. Mm-hmm. You have the obligation right. and a duty to take that to market or take that to the community. You can't sit back and say, I think I've got this and it can help people. You have that obligation. I feel like that's a that's a really yeah. important point for people who are sitting on their, you know, well, I think apathy is the opposite of courage. And mm. some be silent and silence is apathy. And then it does lead to broken deals and huge, uh, hugely negatively impacting outcomes on a bottom line, but also on humanity. Yeah. I mean, man, you know, those of us who grew up in the church, we all, we all heard the parable of the talents, um, mm. you know, and, and if you didn't grow up in the church, like it's, it's Spider-Man philosophy, you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. If, you, if you've got something to offer to the world, I think it's your duty to, to offer it. Mm. Any other insights or really um, special moments at McKinsey? Oh, yeah, tons. Actually, I'll tell you about one of the biggest learning experiences I had was in my second stint, so after I went to Oxford, um, which was an experience with failure. Um, So again, like, you know, I've had the privilege to do some cool stuff in my life, but there's been plenty of failures along the way, and and one of them happened in my second stint at McKinsey. Um, So we were doing a project. um, It was my first experience managing a project, and it wasn't going well. And I felt like I, as a manager, was failing. And so I got into the spiral of I would fail and then I would work harder to try and try and fix the failures. And so then I'd get, you know, I'd lose sleep, uh, be staying up late, lose sleep, which made me less productive, mm. um, which meant that I'd fail some more. And I just got into the spiral that I, that I couldn't get out of. And the answer to that, by the way, was I just should have asked for help. And, and, you know, stop trying to do everything myself. And the thing that I realized when I reflected on it later was that I had this deep-seated thing within me from my childhood, uh, which was my dad would say, if someone, you know, prove everybody wrong, right? Miss Phillips, you were wrong. Yeah. And the way that if anyone tells you you can't do something, prove them wrong. Yeah. But the way that I had internalized that was if something was really hard, then I just needed to look within myself and I'd find the answer. Mm. And the thing that I discovered was that uh, sometimes everyone reaches their limit of what they can do as an individual. And the way that then you expand what you can do is by asking for help or working with a team. But it was something that I had to have that experience of failure to really break that. And when I think about it now, I was in my mid-20s when I had that experience. And now I'm grateful for it. It was excruciatingly painful at the time. Mm. But just the opportunity to break that negative uh, habit and philosophy that I had while I was still relatively early in my career has served me so well for the future. So how did that situation come to an end? Was it either an internal combustion or external combustion? What, what kind of happened? Well, ultimately, I ended up rolling off the project, but I had to go back and, uh, you know, lick my wounds. And, you know, clearly uh, my uh, performance evaluation wasn't fantastic after that project. And, and so I had to, you know, I had to work my butt off then to kind of get myself back in the right place. Um, uh, it's, I appreciate the honesty and the honest reflection and sharing it. 
you know, I've got a Tongan mate who does uh, organizational culture in Newcastle, and one of his frames is often people speed up to speed up, mm. slowing down to speed up, and now we've got people breathing at times of anxiety and at times of crisis, and they're just trying to oxygenate their brains and things like that. Yeah, it's yeah, so true. Yeah, slowing down. And then the second part of it, which is why I was really interested in your questions thing, was he says they slow down to speed up, and then mm. after that rather than making statements, they make, they ask questions because yeah. questions will then be conducive to a really good constructive conversation and, and switches on the higher order thinking brain. Yeah. Like blame. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, statements are so closed, right? They, they, they limit options. And particularly after you've been through a difficult situation, you want to reopen your mind to opportunities. And, and as you say, that just helps you think differently. Yeah. So opportunities, man. You went over to Oxford. I've, I've, man, I'm, I'm privileged, man. I've had Dave, Prof, uh, Associate Professor Damon Salisa on the show. Uh-huh. Very first Rhodes Scholar from the Pacific community. And now yep. I've got man. What the heck? Congratulations. Oh, man, that must have been a proud moment for you and the fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, as I said, I, I never imagined that I could do that uh, and that, uh, that I'd have that opportunity. But I tell you, one of the best moments of my life was after they, so the final round of the Rhodes Scholarship, you go to Wellington and they have the interviews at Government Government House and it's chaired by the Governor General. And they have all these accomplished people on the panel, like uh, one of the the people on my panel was Alan Bollard, who was the Governor of the Reserve Bank at the time. And then at the end of it, all of you who who are in the final round, you're just sitting in this room at Government House waiting for them to make their decision. And then I remember um, uh, the Governor General came in and she said, I know you're all nervous, so uh, so I'm not going to prolong this. The three Rhodes Scholars are. And then, you know, my name was read out. And that's probably one of the few times in my life when I've been speechless. <laughs> uh, but no, because I, ne- you know, you never imagine. Like for me, the, my model of Rhodes Scholar was David Kirk. You know, who yeah. he, w- he was captain of the All Blacks at the 1987 World Cup. And, yeah. you know, I wasn't, I didn't think I was, I was one of those. And then after that, then they say, okay, then they take you to a room and they say, here's a phone, call whoever you want to call. And, man, calling my mom, calling my dad, calling my then girlfriend, who's now my wife. Man. And just, uh, you know, I remember, I remember calling my mom and my sister was in the room and I could hear my sister in the background going, is that Alex? Did he get it? Did he get it? And then she was just screaming. And, you know, when I called dad, uh, he was just silent. And, you know, you think it's like when you hear the stories of when someone gets picked for the All Blacks for the first time, that was what that was like for me. You know, just if you, you think about all of the things your parents did and all of their hopes and dreams and that they have for their children, uh, I'm tearing up even thinking about it now. And, you know, just it feels like you've, you've given them that, you know, one of those moments. That's beautiful, man. Mm. You kind of think, oh, am I really a David Kirk? But what happens when you realise you are a David Kirk? In fact, you're Alex Fala, Rhodes Scholar. What happens when that realisation hits you? Yeah, well, I I probably still didn't believe it, even when they gave me the scholarship. But the time when I did believe it was when I got to Oxford. Awesome. And, you know, it's pretty intimidating when you go over as a Kiwi to Oxford um, and, on, you know, particularly on a Rhodes Scholarship because you get together with all the other Rhodes Scholars and particularly the Americans, you know, like for many of them, like they've already been to Harvard or Yale or Princeton and, you know, they've been groomed for the scholarship and, and, and that's quite intimidating. And when you meet them and you realise that, first of all, you know, many of them are just like you and... Yeah. And in some cases, you know, they're actually, they're not living the sort of values that you would want to live. They're self-promoting, you know, they're promoting themselves and they're not actually anything better than you. Like those things are, are, are they give you a lot of confidence. You know, you, when you realize that you are one of those people, man, like that's life changing as well. And, you know, there's a lot of talk around sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And making sure you're fitting in, and we're trying trying to create systems that are different that people can have that because it's so important. How did you get your sense of belonging in Oxford and in, in the UK and the northern Northern Hemisphere? You know, in, in a small is it a small town? Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it feels even smaller than it is because you know there's sort of a there's a university. They talk about town and the gown, the town people and the university, and the university's kind of 
the core of the centre, but it feels very, very small. Yeah. So how did you get your sense of belonging there? Um, I used to call it Planet Oxford. It was like you were on a different planet. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I just embraced it for what it was. You know, I was like, this is not going to be the, the same way as I've lived in New Zealand, and it's probably not going to be the way I live for the rest of my life. But just revel in the opportunity you've got to do something that few people get to do, and that's very different from what you've ever done before, and just soak it up. You know, that, that was sort of the way that I approached it. But look, having said that, I was, I mean, funnily enough, I switched out one of my papers and did a, did a thesis and actually ended up doing a thesis on Falablave. Uh, so I was, in a, I was in one of my, I did a development economics class and I had this professor who was, uh, he, he had been studying um, Tanzanian funeral societies and he looked at them and had found that you could model them using game theory, a repeated game. Uh, so you know if anyone's seen a beautiful mind it's effectively applying that thinking of game theory to the way that that culture works and when he was talking about that in the lecture uh, I realized that um, it also almost perfectly described the way that our culture works and so I thought okay I can do some study on this and uh, through that you know I can uh, almost model out how how our culture might evolve when you transplant it from the islands and put it into different conditions in New Zealand. Mm. Um, so yeah, even while I was at Oxford, I had this opportunity to kind of apply a completely different way of thinking to, you know, to some questions that I had in my own mind. So what did your thesis find and what did you conclude? Oh man, it's a while ago now, but I think, um, so one of the things that it shows is that, Uh, when you come into a Western society, you end up with greater income inequality, right? We can can see that in Western societies. And the challenge with that is it means that people have got different incentives to contribute to the community because you end up with some people who don't contribute at all or can't and can't contribute in many cases and other people, and in many cases, the people who have got the most options are expected to contribute the most. And so what, and so the danger with that is it can lead to the disintegration of the community because the people who are, who are, who are most privileged say, well, I'm giving too much and I'm not getting enough out of it. And so therefore I'm not going to be part of it. So that was one learning. Um, But the other side of it and the more optimistic side of it was the more people value things other than money uh, that mitigates the risk that Mm. I'm talking about quite significantly. And so for me, the beautiful conclusion out of that is to say that there is risk for our community, but the way that we hold it together is by appealing to the deeper meaning of our customs. And that is things like love and reciprocity, all of those things which help to shape the community in the first place. Because if you can give people that sense of meaning, then the, then the economic inequalities don't matter so much. Because everyone has the opportunity to contribute with a lofa. You know, everyone yeah. has the opportunity to have a lens and an approach that fosters reciprocity. And yeah. capital or the economic contribution is just one of many contributions that are valued within our society and communities. Yeah, so look, and a lot of this just comes down to, I think, our customs in their purest forms, like when they are all about a lofa, then everyone wants to be a part of that. It's only when they kind of get bastardized for, for, you know, in many cases, financial gain or someone's status within the community that that then ends up pushing people away. Mm. Awesome, man. And I think, I think, you know, that I think where we're kind of missing it maybe is communicating to our younger generations what does lie beneath the practices and the protocols and why we give money and why we say it out in church and stuff like that. It's yeah. Been- Planted from overseas, but it just makes sense though if someone gives you a gift that you acknowledged it. Um, but that hasn't really worked well in the church situation where now it's become a competition of who gives more and who's more. Yeah. Who's more. And look, the, and there's different, you know, there's different conditions in Western society, right? Like the in, in the communities which you know where these customs were founded, you know, you gave what you were able to give. There was no access to credit, 
right? And we see in many of our societies that now people are pushed to give a lot and they've got access to credit. And in many cases, that gets them into trouble later on, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just different conditions, challenges, cultures in different ways, and they've got to evolve and, and grow. Awesome, man. So the Rhodes Scholarship, you, you do how many years there? Three years? I did two. Two years, a thesis in two years, and then you come back to McKinsey. Yep. What made you leave McKinsey? Because it's such a reputable place. Uh, what made you leave there? Yeah, there were a few things. Uh, one was, um, and probably the most important one, was I had my first child. Awesome. Uh, and I was traveling a lot. You know, I think in my last in my last two years at McKinsey, I was officially living in Auckland, but 18 months of it, I was traveling back and forth to Australia every week. And yeah, I had my first child and, uh, and I wanted to spend more time with her. Uh, but I'd also worked out that I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to be a decision maker rather than an advisor. That was where I saw myself long term. Um, so that was part of, the, that was part of the, the shift as well. So because you've been in leadership positions, decision making positions across uh, Vend, across Les Mills and across Trade mm. and others? Yep. So those those were probably the three big ones, and then I had a short stop at Orion Health in there as well. So let's talk about leadership. Really interested. You you know these are massive these are massive companies. I want to know how do you keep your mental capacity sharp when there's so many decisions to be made. Oh yeah, that's a that's a tricky question. Um, so. So your question sort of around how to stay focused when there's when there's so much going on. So many competing things, and you've got you've got elements of the business that might not be in your scope, but you've got to be across them. You've got to be across yeah. much at the top at the top of the chain. How do yeah. you choose, prioritize, and then how do you stay sharp around those decisions? Yeah, so it's, it's a few things. So one thing I would say is um, you have to be a student of your craft and a and a student of of your own business. Um, These are all the things which mattered for me, right? Other people handle it in different ways. Um, And so what that meant was I was always trying to get better at what I did and get different perspectives. And with respect to our own business, you know, for better or worse, it was all consuming. You know, I would have thoughts at 11 o'clock at night about the business and then just couldn't resist but to, you know, get out the laptop. And, and, you know, I I cared that much about what I was doing. Mm. Um, So that's one thing you really got to be a, a true student and really care. Yeah. Um, I think the, the second thing as she comes back to some of the stuff you were talking about earlier, you can choose your, your operating style. And my choice was that, particularly as a CEO, you know, some people fill their time with, di- they fill their diary with meetings and they get energy out of feeling like they're doing stuff. I had a different philosophy. My philosophy was, as a CEO, most people, everyone in the organization is closer to what they're doing than I am. They should know what they're doing better than I do. And the the main thing that I can offer is perspective across all of them and how they all fit together. And to get that perspective, I have to take a step back. I can't fill all my time with days. I need to have, you know, my big value add is that additional perspective across all of those pieces. And it might come down to three or four decisions I make in a year, uh, as opposed to, and you know, of course there are tons more decisions to make than that. But I think in many cases, um, you know, people just allow themselves to get busy and carried away by the momentum rather than thinking about the way that they actually add value. So that's probably the second thing I'd say. And then the third one uh, comes down to, uh, training yourself to perform under pressure. Um, and, you know, there's there's been a lot of work on this in, in the sporting realm and increasingly we're seeing it in business. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, you hear it, the All Blacks talk about this a lot, like they talk about the, the redhead, the heat, and they talk about the bluehead, the cool. Terry Evans, who wrote a great book, um, and, and Gilbert Enoka uh, brought that stuff in. And I think that's right. So you need to have... You need to have that fire in you and at the same time have a cool head. And the way to do that is, you know, you have to be training your brain at the same time as you're working on the business. So your approach is really humble. It's really, it's a really humble one to say, oh, they've got all the power. They've got most of the knowledge about, around what they do. My value add is to step back. 
do people take to that leadership style? Because you, usually we've got these authoritarian, authoritarians coming in and telling us what to do. And we know that that's a humble and probably a better style of leadership. But sometimes people want that authority. Is that what you found in your organizations or do you recruit for people aligned to your ethos? Yeah, I mean, we're trying to recruit for people who are creative and show initiative. They act as if they're owners of the firm. That was sort of the approach that we took at Bend. And I think many businesses these days need that. Certainly the research that I've read suggests that it's only in certain contexts that people want to be told what to do. Yeah. Um, most people actually, you know, like there's Dan Pink stuff around autonomy, mastery, purpose. Most people want a bit of freedom. And they just, at different stages in their career or on different tasks, want a bit of guidance. So, yeah, people did take to that. I mean, I always, you hear all these analogies. One of the big light bulbs for me as a leader um, was when I realized, you know, if we use a sporting analogy, when I first became CEO, I thought that I was the captain of the team. And then I realized one day that actually most of my job is to be the head coach, Right. I don't actually get to take the field for many plays. My job is to pick the right team, is to set the game plan, you know, drive a performance culture. It's to make people feel like you care about them so they feel intrinsically motivated. It's all of those things. So, yeah, so I always felt like the thing that evolved is most of the time I was head coach and then every now and then I was the executive chef in the kitchen on specific things, right? So not, so it ain't leaving the kitchen unless it meets my standard. Right? Oh. So getting that balance right between when I'm head, when you head coach and when you're exec chef, I think that's a challenge. You know, that was always a challenge for me and I think it always will be. You got to put down the footy, footy ball and then pick up the, the apron. But where do you think the intersection is or where do you think the opportunity is for our communities? From the places that you've been in, all these fields that you've been in business and then leadership and executive uh, leadership, what are some of the learnings that can help our community and where we're at? Yeah, so, so let me say a few things. First of all, when you get to the top level of anything, mm. it's all about people leadership, right? So the best leadership training I did in my, probably in my entire corporate career, uh, was coaching my son's rugby team. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and I started coaching them when they, when they were in under nines, eight years old. And you realize that, you know, trying to get eight-year-old boys to play to some form of game plan, have fun, and not do anything that's going to embarrass their parents behavior-wise, you know, you learn a lot about it really breaks leadership down to the basics, you mm. know. And, and, and so the thing which people in our community should take out of that is that all of those skills that they learn in sports or leading the chants at school or in the church, those are actually really critical leadership skills for, you know, for business leadership. Mm. And, you know, and so when I think about Pacific people succeeding in business, I usually think to myself, you've, you've got so many of the hard things and the thing that our people often need to focus on is just doing some of the basics because unfortunately you'll never get the opportunity to do that if you're not numerate, literate, you know, actually study hard and, and, and do well and, you know, do well in school and, and, and make sure you've got those basic requirements in place. Um, so that's, that's the aspirational side is that the skills are there. I, I still, my heart still breaks when I think about the amazing leaders who I grew up with who ultimately have ended up, in, in jobs or in, you know, kind of in their adult lives, not having, not being in an environment where they can exercise those, those amazing leadership skills. So I'd love to see more of that. That's truth. And that's knowledge bombs, man, because yeah, we have innately and our culture fosters the things that can make us successful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the other thing that I would say about business in particular, um, I think in, you know, in our community, many people, and many of our people still have not really been exposed to much business. And so it's easy for them to think that business is a whole lot of, you know, boring old white men in gray suits sitting in cubicles. And, and that's not what it's like at all from my perspective. Um, mm -hmm. You know, business for me, it's a creative outlet. Um, so much of business success these days is about creativity and innovation. 
Um, it's also a competitive outlet. You know, I you know played lots of sports. We played sports together. There's there's still that piece of me that says, man, I I'm never going to play for the All Blacks, but this is my shot at the world. And so it's a competitive outlet. And it's also a team sport. If you're doing it right, you know, the opportunity to build a team and just do big things with a group of diverse, but also um, diverse people who have a common purpose. And that's a special experience. I love your reframe of business because I think that a lot of us, and me included, you know, I was brought up uh, hearing, you know, money is the root of all evil when that was actually not what that saying. Um, Yeah. Saying, you know, there's a scoreboard there. The scoreboard we only see often is money. Mm. Yeah, good scoreboard because money is a byproduct of a value exchange, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when I talked about what I was, at Vend, I was trying to build a remarkable company. And the way I always spoke about it was that means we need to be successful in the market and deliver a commercial return for our shareholders. It means we need to do the right thing by our customers and really add value to them. And it also means I'm trying to create career-defining experiences for the people who work there. Right? That, to me, was success. That's what a remarkable business looks like. Wow. Oh, man, that's awesome. So under that, what were your main, what were your main values? At the company or personally? So to create a remarkable uh, organization, what were the values that were going to drive you to that remarkable base? Yep. So, so we were, just for context, we were um, providing software to retailers. And so yep. we talked about four values. One of them was delight our retailers. Another one was make the impossible happen. Um, so that was all about being bold and thinking big. Um, the third one was act as an owner. So never think that you're, you know, you have to, do the right thing by the company, always put the company ahead of your career or, the, or your, your individual benefits. And at the same time, you know, spend the company's money as if it's your own and all of those things. So act as an owner. And then the fourth one was bring your best self to work. Um, so we wanted people to bring their whole selves, but we also wanted them to continue to grow. And if, if at home you leave the dirty dishes on the side of the sink, then uh, don't bring that part to work. Um, you know, uh, those, so those were the four values at then. Man, I love it. And uh, I'm really interested in uh, high-performing teams and high-performing companies. Like, I, like I've mentioned, I went from seeing businesses as just about money and making money and greed, and now I'm actually entering into this phase, and we've talked about it outside of this, where you know I'm really excited to learn more from you and really excited to have this chat because of those interests that I have personally. Mm. On a more personal note, man, what's one of your best achievements? And then I'll ask about what's maybe one of your uh, most disappointing events. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about, I mean, honestly, my still my best achievements are genuinely my marriage and my children. Um, oh. And I've always said to my wife that that's the one thing that, you know, if, if ever business was threatening that, then... I'm out, um, you know, family first. So, so that, and that's, that's really true for me. Um, I think it's, re- I mean, it's really hard to look past the road scholarship at an emotional level, but ultimately that was an opportunity rather than achievement. That's the way that I think about it. Um, look, I'm proud of the way that I developed the business at Vend. Um, Vend had a great start, but it also needed to evolve to act two. And, you know, during, during my time at Vend, I'm proud we had, amazing growth. The business became financially a lot stronger. During our time there, 90% of people in the company would say that they would recommend Venn to a friend and they were proud to work there. And all of our customer satisfaction scores went up by like 20%. So, you know, I'm, the, the entirety of, of, that, um, of that struggle and, and, and ultimately the progress that we make, um, you know, I'm proud of that. Well done too, and and congratulations for where you've taken it. And I look forward to the next phase. Just a bit more of a lighter note: three people that you'd invite to dinner. Ah oh, man, to those ones, you know what I mean? Oh, okay, three people. So one person who comes to mind is Dr. Dre. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going off the top of my head here. Dre Day. I, I, I like. I mean, I like the music, but also I just find uh, I think he's super interesting. He is, eh? Um, you know, he had a really interesting, uh, you know, coming from the hood, and then, um, and then, and then being super successful, but also the way that he's such a perfectionist. Like that to me is really interesting. I'm not picking like the people who are my idols. I'm picking, yeah. I'm saying the people I just think would be super interesting. I mean, 
the great social leaders of the past, I'd probably pick Lincoln, um, Abraham Lincoln, because I think his story is a lot more, comp- everyone knows about him, you know, the role that he played in the Civil War and, and, and the, the emancipation of slavery. But I think it's a much more complex story than that. You know, he evolved his position over time and the way that he led a team, um, you know, there's sort of a famous, famous thing about Abraham Lincoln where he, um, and they call it a, a team of rivals. He brought together all his political rivals and molded them into a team. I think, I don't know, I just think that's super interesting. That's cool, yeah. Um, and who's, the, who's the third person? Man, I'm missing so many people here. I, I, I'd be super interested to talk to the current Pope. Hey, that's at least a tie reckon. Yeah. One of them too. Yeah. Well, I, the thing that I love about what he's doing is I think a lot of the time Catholic Church gets associated with social conservatism, you know, so issues like abortion and gay rights and those kind of things. But to me, the Catholic Church that I grew up in was all about care for the poor and and the less well-off. And those were the values that I took out of my upbringing. And I think, um, you know, the current Pope has, has brought a lot of those things back to the forefront. So I think that's super interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's three. I don't know if that all. I don't know if that that all get on, but um, that'll be interesting. So maybe you could play Chronic Two Thousand and One to the Pope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Circus <laughs> beats my dream. Oh man, I'm going to regret that answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, all good, bro. And and lastly, man, I just to wind it down. Um, what would you? What advice would you give people coming up, or maybe even to personalize it, your twenty year old self? Yeah. Cool. Um. I mean, to my 20-year-old self, the things that I would say to that person are um, the thing that that, that 20-year-old should, have ke- should keep is that drive and that fire within. The things that I wish I'd known were different were, one, that my identity is a strength and I should, you know, and certainly for everyone listening out there, culture is a strength never feel like you need to hide your culture in a business context. For me, it's, it's made me unique and different. And I think that's helped create opportunities for me. And I didn't realize that so much when I was 20. And then the other thing I would say is smell the roses a little bit and take your time um, because life is actually quite long and you can't always force it, right? Sometimes you just got to wait for the right waves to come along, but keep doing the right thing and keep living your values and eventually opportunities will come. And as long as you're on the lookout for them, you'll, you'll have success. That's mint, bro. I really appreciate your time. I think you're a super smart guy, but you're also deeply caring and you're very humble and you live out the values that have been fostered in you from your, uh, from your family. Obviously your family is a massive support network and they've nurtured, um, nurtured you to where you are not only your family that you've come from but also it sounds like you've been in a relationship with your wife for so long since high school and Mm. still battling through this life together with your children and you're still tight and you're still putting each other first so man this is just a such a great role model for so many different things business-wise identity-wise family-wise values-wise um i think there's a lot of gems that you've dropped and i've learned so much and um yeah, I just really appreciate you taking time out of your day to have this chat. Uh, just probably a last question. What's next for Alex Fala? Uh, I'm, I'm just beginning, man. So, look, I've, I still want to get back. You know, at some point I'll jump back into a business. It might be, might be one that's there right now. It might be one that I start. Um, but I've still got big aspirations. I think we as a country in New Zealand, we need more successful businesses and, and that's, that's how we create jobs and create prosperity. And, and I want to, I want to be part of be part of making that happen. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. I know that whatever you take up will be successful. And I know that, you know, you'll take successes out of the learnings and the, and the um, so-called failures that you might have, but I just love how you deal with the achievement side and also the, the challenging times that you've had in your life and you've been reflective and um, you've handled them as if it's part of a journey, not a moment. Now, nah, thanks for having me on, man. It's been, it's been a privilege and a blessing. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Alex Fuller, CEO and Rhodes Scholar and just the all-round nice dude and I'm really appreciative of him taking out his time. 
It feels like Alex was always destined for a leadership role uh, given the family environment he was raised in, where it sounds like accountability, decision making, and constant progress was dished up with the traditional kiwi meat and three veggies. Um, I really love how Alex frames business as a sector which really aligns with his passion. So he likes the fact that it offers teamwork, making big plays, keeping score, and having fun competing. What's even more awesome to me is that he wants to have his hand on the steering wheel, driving the company, making those big decisions and then setting the course for that organization. And that takes real confidence and ambition and I love learning off other people with those traits. Um, From what I know of Alex, he's also a really caring and patriotic guy. He believes in the fact he can grow people, he, he loves that he can employ people and also that he can contribute to the Kiwi economy when these companies succeed. And it's so obvious that Alex really cares deeply about what he does, who he does it with, and then who it impacts. What a legend, man. Thanks for sharing, Alex. Lover. Uh, really appreciate it. Next week, we'll be looking at success from a different angle, and that angle comes from our youngest guest on the show, Lukan Salakayaloto. Um, I reached out to Lukan because he's a Wallaby Rugby 40 player, um, and he plays for my beloved Reds, Queensland Reds, um, my second favourite team after the Chiefs. But more so, I reached out to Lukan because he's a 23-year-old who has similar traits as Alex. He's confident, he's proud, and he cares deeply beyond his profession. And um, I'm really keen for him to share his thoughts and insights on things such as youth culture, uh, being Pacifica in Australia, his life as a pro 40 player, his hip-hop journey, as well as his role as eldest sibling. So Lukan, um, it was in the media that Lukan lost his father a couple of years ago, and he took a break from rugby, actually, which was really bold. Um, But he's really conscious about his role as a role model and owns that space. Check it out next week. Looking forward to bringing that chat. But um, for now, please take care. Connect into our social media, the Global Pacifica Success Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And God bless you all.